0: Well, it is good to be back out here. Uh, I was actually behind this pulpit about two years ago. So uh, you guys have always been a great body of believers to be able to come out here, and I've always felt so loved at this church. And that was probably one of the best introductions I've ever had, because you can have no expectations from that. Here's Brian. (laughs) So I don't have anything to live up to, right? Well, the text we're going to be talking about this morning, Luke chapter 4, it was funny, I was meeting up with a buddy in Dallas earlier this week, and as we were catching up, he said, so what are you teaching on this week? And I said, Luke chapter four. And he said, really, He goes, that's one of my favorite passages. And so, of course, as surprising as that statement was to me, uh, and instead of encouraging him on his selection, I said, really, why? And he goes, well, it was from my reading of a book called The Brothers Karamazov. I don't know if you've ever read that book, you know, the one that's a thousand pages. You probably just got the cliff notes to by Fyodor Dostoyevsky. Well, uh, he was saying, you know, it was reading that book that made me realize that there is so much more going on in this passage than I'd ever realized before. It's so much more than just Jesus being hungry and not eating bread. And so he's exactly right. There is so much going on in this passage that this sermon is really going to be more of an awareness, more of a, uh, a sermon that we're just going to walk through each verse. It's not a three-point sermon. There's nothing, you know, I'm not giving you an outline right now. We're just going to march and jump right into it because even as he was mentioning in the prayer, there is so much to break into God's Word and and, and to see from it. So uh, let's just go ahead and uh, jump right in. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Now, up to this point, Jesus hasn't taught. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't... um, cleansed anyone he hasn't cast out any demons for the most part jesus has been passive and what i mean by that is he's been prophesied about he's been baptized he's received understanding and received power received the spirit he was included and incorporated into a genealogy so so far jesus hasn't done anything but in luke chapter 4 it changes you're going to see jesus becomes the subject of the verbs So we see Jesus kind of coming out, and he's going to initiate. So what he had received, he is now going to be able and begin to act. So isn't it great, before we even start this chapter, that we have something to emulate? That Jesus, just like us, receives something before we're able to go out there and initiate, before we're able to go out there and act, before we're able to stand strong. So let's pick up in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, Jesus isn't the only one that's it said, has ever been full of the Spirit. Up to this point, actually, in the book of Luke, we have John the Baptist is full of the Spirit. We have Elizabeth is full of the Spirit. We have Zacharias, who is full of the Spirit. Later on, we know Peter and Paul and Stephen and Barnabas and the elders and even us. And so what does that mean, full of the Spirit? It's not something that's a, this, this exterior compulsive force on us. This is something that we are filled with. This is this inward inspiration. This is the third person of the Trinity. And so this text doesn't develop that much there, but it's just something to note, that Jesus comes and is full of the Spirit. But not only that, we see, as it says, he was led by the Spirit. Now, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you all up front that my interpretation of this passage is that it has more to do with God's testing than a satanic tempting. And I'm going to tell you why, and we're going to get more into that in a minute. But we see right here that he is led by the Spirit. So this is God's direct leading for his life. And underlying this entire section that we're going to get into is an Old Testament passage. He actually quotes from the same book all three times, but we'll get into that in a second. And so what underlines this entire passage is the temptation Israel had in the wilderness back in the Old Testament. And so I wanted to read one um, passage for you from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And so they it was in order to test them. Are you fully committed to me? Are you fully committed? Now, one other thing to notice in this verse, and I think a lot of times, at least when I've heard this being taught, is pastors make much of the point that this took place in the wilderness. And that the wilderness, I mean, it'll get you fired up. I mean, you know, it's it's great applicational imagery. You're in a wilderness. I mean, do you find yourself in a wilderness? And are you dodging demons and that this is the home? This is where Satan resides and you shouldn't go into places like this. But I actually think the opposite is going on here. I actually think that the context here is good. And I'm going to first, I'll just give you a couple of examples of the wilderness actually being a great place to be. Uh, where did Moses command Israel to sacrifice and commune with God? The wilderness of Sinai. Where was John the Baptist's ministry in the wilderness? Where was Jesus baptized in the wilderness where John the Baptist was? In Revelation chapter 12, where does God take the faithful community in order to, it explicitly says, in order to get away from the serpent, the devil, the wilderness? So people go oftentimes there to commune. Now, granted, there are several passages that have a negative connotation. So really, you just need to wrestle with a passage and say, what's going on here? And so I'm going to argue that this is a good place. And you're going to see that we, I feel, give a little bit too much credit to Satan instead of God and his sovereignty in this. That he didn't just allow this to happen. He appointed this to happen. Another thing we want to notice is, you know, if if you've not grown up in a church and you've not heard these stories, what's a question you might be asking? Why... um, Or is it is it possible that Jesus is going to be able to go through these temptations and succeed? I mean, that's kind of what Luke's building up to this point. I mean, the last chapter, he just announced that God said, this is my beloved son. And all of a sudden we're getting into these temptations. And if you know, historically, if you've been reading your Bible chronologically, you have how many temptations of the devil did it take for Eve to fall? How many for Adam to fall? How many for David to fall? How many for Moses to fall? How many for Peter to fall? How many for Judas to fall? We, there's a horrible record going on. I mean, if you're a sports fan, you say, it's Owen, you know, a million. This team cannot win. <laughs> and I won't throw out names of sports teams just because I don't want to offend anybody. But, uh, you know, the record is not good. But for those of you that grew up in the church, what's something you might be thinking? Why does God test them? I mean, it's Jesus. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's the Lamb of God. Why would God test him? Because he loves him that every single person we have in the Bible that the Lord loves, He tests. And so should we be surprised when we're going through testing, when we're going through times of discipline, struggles? Actually, the Bible says the only time you should be worried is if you're not. Hebrews chapter 12 says you might be an illegitimate child if you're not experiencing the Lord's discipline. That 1 Corinthians 15 says you may have believed in vain. And so one thing we should be encouraged about is that God is testing his son here, that he's going through these trials and these temptations. Well, as we go forward, we see again that, as, as I'm mentioning, I feel it's because the devil has a vital role to play in God's plan. That's the reason he's there. This isn't the devil's lair. This isn't his home. He's not confined. And so the other reason, just real quick, that I'm sharing that is, you know, not just to to redeem kind of God's sovereignty over the events that are taking place here, as it says, he's led by the Spirit, but also because we oftentimes think that the devil is only in Las Vegas, that the devil is only in the bars and clubs, that the devil is only in rap music, that the devil is only in all these different things. The Bible shows that that's not the case. It's God's can use him vitally in different scenarios. And so... God didn't merely allow this. I feel he appointed it. And in verse 2, it says, where for 40 days he entered temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he was hungry. Now, we often call this the temptation of Jesus. But we already know there's three temptations. We know the New Testament talks about other temptations. And even this verse in the Greek, it's a present participle for you uh, that know English well. And so he, for 40 days, was going through temptations. This isn't just something he had, a couple temptations, for like, oh, he got off easy, you know, I'm sitting here day in and day out, I have three or more a day, and, you know, over his entire life, he just had this, the temptation of Jesus. So we know he was tempted far more times than just this. Now, as we're moving through this, I want us to also notice one other thing, and, and, um you know, as it's talking about here, that he fasted. I think oftentimes again, and, and I'm not just here to, to vent all my pet peeves, but we often, I feel, overemphasize one side of the coin: that Jesus was at his weakest because he fasted for 40 days. He physically can't do this, and he still triumphed over the devil. And again, you get fired up on how weak Jesus was physically. And that's true. Jesus was weak physically. But I think that misses the more significant spiritual aspect. What's Jesus been doing for 40 days? What does it mean to be fasting? You are focusing all your attention on God. You are feasting on his word. So for 40 days, we might have a picture here that he is at his strongest spiritually. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. It's just another way to kind of view this, that there's two sides of the same coin But but I think that we overemphasize how weak he was. I can't see him being stronger, having a direct communication and fasting for 40 days. And so if you've been on a fast, you know what that is like. Well, it also mentions something else here. It says these temptations came from the devil. Now, I want to mention a few things about the devil. First, this is the first time he comes up. In explicitly in, in the Gospel of Luke, that he steps out behind the curtain. Up to now, it's, it's been veiled. So Luke gives evil a face. Now, regardless of what um, I feel like many of us or even our culture suggest about the devil, according to the Bible, he is a very real, diabolical person, a fallen angel that has minions, that has many at his bidding. So we call that the demonic realm. And one thing I did want to share, uh, this isn't the time or place to get into the story, but I did want to, from behind a pulpit with a Bible in my hand, say that I have firsthand seen and experienced the demonic realm. And so this is very real. To see somebody's face, voice, and body transform in front of you, that's something you'll never forget. I only wish, going back, that I wouldn't have only been a Christian for six months. I had no idea what to do. But I've seen it firsthand. And so this is very real. So, fortunately for us, he is not God. And as the Bible portrays, demons cannot even speak without permission from God, as Mark chapter 1 tells us. And so, again, there is a healthy fear to have, but we should also know who to trust in when we're facing temptations in times where, as we're going to get into, when he arrives and when he comes. So, as we are uh, getting on and it says, when they had ended, he was hungry. So we know again, he was weak physically. Now, we don't know the exact confrontation that this took place. Was it a voice that he audibly heard? Is it a person standing there? What was the confrontation? We don't know. But what we do know and what's clear from the passage is that there's a confrontation here of personalities in this Ring of battle. I mean, you know, you know, we we just it, it's it's a great. You almost want to see this in a movie. You almost want to see how it's how it would be uh, placed. But what do you think um, he's going to go for? In verse four three, the devil said to him, "If you are the son of God," and he's really saying that. He's not saying since you are the son of God. He's saying, "If you are the son of God," and let's just say for the sake of the argument, you are as. It was said by God in the last chapter. Then turn, command this stone to become bread. <clears throat> now, the focus of this testing is not, um, is not only indicated by if you are the Son of God. What is he ultimately asking? What is he saying to him? This relationship that he had in this last chapter of God declaring him as his son, he's trying to drive a wedge between it. What is that wedge? Well, as we see here, he's saying, you need to indulge yourself. You need to do whatever your body tells you. Whatever your body desires, that's what you need to do. Would you say that we struggle with this? Uh, two weeks ago, in the Wall Street Journal... There was an article, and just given some statistics, and then, of course, it's going to tell you the financial impact that's going to have. It says, since 1980, childhood obesity has tripled. Currently, 12.5 million American children and teens ages 2 to 19 are obese. 17% of the population, an additional 17% of children, are at risk for becoming overweight. The rate of extreme obesity among boys 6 to 19 years old has surged 62%. So you get to the end, and, of course, they want to give you a financial wrap-up on what that might mean for our economy. And so it says, with one-third of the U.S. population now officially classified as obese, the financial implications are severely over, uh, of the severely overweight nation are emerging in both obvious and subtle ways. Recent calculations peg the price tag of the obesity epidemic at $140 billion a year in, ex- in extra medical costs. Excess weight and obesity are responsible for an estimated 27% of the national health care charges. And so again, that's just one stat. And and again, put in your standard deviation. But the general point is made, we have a tough time not indulging ourselves. We have a tough time saying no. We have a tough time practicing the virtue of what's called temperance, to be able to say no. But we're going to get more onto that as we see Jesus responds. And he says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So Jesus doesn't argue. What does he do? He quotes. And the most significant key to understanding this entire section is where he's quoting from. All three quotes are going to come from the exact same book, and it's the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the nation. Actually, it's really interesting to see where he draws from is from uh, the Shema around that section. It starts with the Shema, which is what? What the Jews had to recite Every single day to love the Lord your God with all of your strength, all of your soul, all of your uh, might. And so it's calling for a total commitment to God. And that's what Jesus is being tempted here to do. Are you going to indulge yourself? Are you going to succumb to what the world has to offer? And it's, you know, the other thing to see about this is just some of the parallels. We don't have time to go in and set the context in Deuteronomy. But just again, you think here's another son of God in, in the wilderness being tested. Here's another 40. Instead of 40 years, it's 40 days. And so Israel failed. But what about Christ? And so that's what Luke's saying. What's Christ going to do? We know Israel failed. I mean, this is loaded with passages, loaded with motifs that come from the Old Testament. You're sit, It's meant to have you say, whoa, that's right. I remember Israel, 40 years, could not do What's going on here? So it's a question of priorities. Is obedience to God's will going to take priority over our self-gratification? Now, bread's not bad in and of itself. We know that. I mean, just like certain things that we eat and we enjoy doing, they're not bad in and of themselves. But should God, should our belly be our God? Actually, Philippians talks about those that their belly was their God. That they're driven by every passion, every desire, everything that they want. And so, you know, if I don't in reference to that article, it's it's become if I can't control my appetite, will you staple my stomach? Will you give me a pill? Will you give me some drink that'll make me feel full all the time? I want to feel full all the time. Don't take away my food. Don't take away the things that I enjoy, the indulgences that I partake of. We're also the richest nation of the world with trillions of dollars in debt. Because, again, I only have to reference, I'm in finance. I've worked in finance the last 12 years, start off on a trading floor. And uh, the last two years alone, if I'd only been in the business, I could say, look at the last two years and we can tell we want things we can't afford. Houses that are bigger than our incomes are able to uh, allow us to have. And so, if you can't, if you want it, get it. If you can't buy it, put it on credit. I mean, that's kind of, you know, uh, one of our mantras. You know, is that's that's the way we've pursued. What is Christ's food? What's the diet of Christ? John four thirty four tells us it is to do the will. It says he says explicitly, "My food is to do the will of him who sent me." And so we just, again, reflecting on ourselves, not other people, not nudges on the arms. Reflecting on ourselves, what are our priorities? I remember a DTS professor, uh, my first year of seminary, he said, you know, just to stay in practice, I say no three times a day. And what a good, what a good anecdote. I just say no three times a day just to stay in practice. Of course, he said he went on to say that his wife doesn't like when one or all of them come to her. But uh, he said, you know, it just keeps me in practice. We've got to learn to say no. And if we don't make it a discipline that you'll say no three times a day. Let me share one other point here that I think is important. As we're marching through these verses, the Bible doesn't give us psychological profiles of all its people. It forces the reader to look at their conversations and to look at their actions. Because why? That's true to life that our actions reveal our heart. If Jesus never said a word, his actions revealed his heart. Do our actions reveal our heart? So no matter how how many things we say to people, and I want this, you know, everybody wants to be smart, nobody wants to read. Everybody wants to be good-looking, nobody wants to work out. Everyone wants to be healthy, they don't want to diet. So all these different things, we say it until we're brewing the face, but your actions reveal your heart. What are your actions? In verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, I will give you all the dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. So the devil doesn't stop with his temptations. He keeps going. What's the what's the temptation here? It sounds at first that it's maybe indulgence again. I'll give you all this stuff. Just indulge. It's primarily choosing the world over God, because ultimately, is he going to have all the kingdoms? Yeah, so it's the right end. Do you see the temptation? You're ultimately going to get this, so just get it now. I mean, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everything's going to be handed over to Christ, but he offers it, him, offers it to him by the wrong means right now, not according to God's plan. That I think the temptation is really doubt God's plan. Christ knows he's getting all of this, but Satan is offering it to him now. Uh, real quick, it's it's funny. Two weeks ago, uh, the Pope wound up praying uh, on Wednesday, May 12th. And this was his prayer for his priests. That you would avoid the snares of the world and reject the temptations of the devil. And it's interesting because the top news story in 2009 was the sex abuse scandal. And so it's interesting that, you know, there are. One of those things again We're praying and saying the right things But are our actions following Because our actions reveal our heart We can pray all the things we want to pray We can say all the things we want to say Your actions reveal your heart And the Bible says that as well From the heart flows the wellsprings of life um, But what about us? <laughs> I mean that's the religious Leaders that we just read about Those are religious leaders that are And we all need the prayers I'm not, I'm not saying that you know they're just praying it We all need that But what about us? What about Americans? Did you know, I feel like I could only say one term and you all will get what I'm saying, but I'll I'll make it longer. Uh, Consumerism. There are divisions and departments designed to make you want. It's a whole science out there. You think the cameras in the stores, they're not there just to catch shoplifters. They're there to see when they come into the store, do they go to the right or the left? Do they linger here or there? I mean, I've uh, booked many booths and been to many conferences where you pay more money in order to have the booth located here, in order to have something on this shelf versus this shelf in grocery stores. It's consumerism. Everything is designed to make you want to buy. Uh, also this week, and I promise the Wall Street Journal is not the only uh, the only newspaper I read, but there was another one uh, this week. It says, OMG, which we all know means, oh my God, these bags cost a lot, Right? Well, the article goes on, and I won't have time to read all of it, but this one phrase really stuck out. It said retailers are hoping, after they talked about shoppers finally getting through the recession and tiptoeing back into the stores, retailers are hoping that they'll serve two higher purposes, that they'll lure shoppers in by the impression of the mall and to help capture every part of a shopper's wallet. And the article is telling you what they're doing to design it in order to get you to spend all that you have. They want every dollar from your wallet. So the same commitment, in a sense, that God's wanting, we see there are departments, there's a whole science of consumerism trying to get you to give everything you have, your total commitment to to their products, to their things. We live for the goodies. We do, myself included. I mean, we enjoy some of the things. I was uh, teaching a corporate Bible study. Uh, This was probably about six, eight months ago. And I wound up sharing a verse that... The faces dropped, the eyes widened when I shared this verse, and they immediately wanted me to qualify the verse. Let me read it to you. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 26 says, For to the one who pleases God, he gives them wisdom, knowledge, and joy. So that's great. He gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to the one who pleases him. But to the sinner, he gives the task of amassing wealth. And they're just, it was dead silent qualify that tell us that's not us tell us we can have whatever we want and we're we're in the will of God and for purposes here I will also not qualify it but what is supreme in your life? that's the question I want to ask what a good indication of what are your priorities again outside of your actions is what do you daydream about? what do you daydream about when you're sitting there and again you're not at church you're alone you're, you're somewhere and you're just daydreaming what do you daydream about? that's a good indication of where your heart is Well, the devil goes on in verse six and he says, I will give you all the dominion and glory, as we just read. And he emphasizes here the to you in the Greek, it's the first words that show up in the devil's speech. And so he's saying all of this you can have. He's emphasizing you can have all of this stuff. And so doubt God's plan for your life. And how does Jesus go on? He says, but Jesus answered him in verse eight. It is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The worship there, when the devil asks him to worship him, it's not just honor me, hey, give me some props, give me a shout out. I mean, it's, I want your complete allegiance. I want a complete change of command. And then he says, no, 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 that's only meant for God. Only God deserves and and, uh, is suitable to have all that we are. Well, it's a choice of allegiance, but he goes on. The devil brought him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And with their hands, he will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. OK, so what, what's going on here? I mean, one, did you know that the, the devil knows your Bible? The devil knows the scripture. Uh, Luke, I'll just go ahead and throw this out there. Luke put places this temptation at the end, but we know chronologically it didn't happen here. This was the second temptation, but Luke places it here in order to emphasize this one, because I would argue Luke is saying this is the greatest temptation of them all. So if you're, if you're going to not really think about the last two, at least think of this temptation. Also, it happens in Jerusalem. So I think that's why he's also... So it's more of a a thematic versus a chronological. So don't let that worry you when you read Matthew and you're like, wait a second, they're different in order. It's one's giving it to you chronologically, the other one's just giving you the themes. But this one he is emphasizing as the greatest temptation. Why would that be? Could it be that first, the temptation is wrapped and clothed in Scripture? Is it absolutely from God if Scripture is quoted? I mean, does that still happen today? Are there false ideologies and theologies out there that are wrapped into Scripture? The prosperity gospel? The name it, claim it? I mean, there's plenty of churches and places that, again, you're going to hear Scripture. There is no doubt. Uh, I remember I visited one time, um, they call it a ward, uh, a Mormon church, and they're quoting our Bible. They're quoting the Scriptures, but do they mean the same thing by it? No. And so he's quoting it, but what is he ultimately tempting him? So yes, it's wrapped, it's clothed in Scripture. But what is he tempting him to do? It's you be Lord over God. Because why? When I, when I said the words name it, claim it, that's I think really an emphasis here is who is in charge or who's serving who? Because is God our genie? That's ultimately what he's saying. God's your genie. Jump down. He'll save you. You name it, and you can claim it. If you say it, if you pray it, it must happen. God is required to save you. Look at his word. His word says, you jump, I'll save you. So, in a sense, the test is exercise faith in God. So, if I was up here and I gave a message, I want you guys to exercise faith in God. Amen. Do that. Awesome. That's what Satan is saying right here. Exercise faith in God. What is Jesus going to do here? But Jesus answered him and he said, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. As I was mentioning, um, I think this is more on the testing of God than it is the tempting of Satan. Satan. You know, he's trying to create a situation in which Jesus will doubt his father's dependability. He won't trust him. Um, you know, he, it'll, it'll ultimately, it's an arrogant statement. Be arrogant. You are Lord over God. Exercise faith in him. Let's see what he can do. It's kind of like, you know, talking to a non-Christian. They're like, OK, and then if God wants me to do this, tell him to do this or, you know, have him show up here. Have him do this. The Lord's not at our bidding. You don't. I've actually never heard a, a, a Psalm 115:3 preached, but it's, our God sits in the heavens, and He does what He pleases. We are not lord over God. He's not our genie. This isn't a book to rub. Now, again, are there qualifications to everything I said? Yes. I'm not saying that means don't pray. That means don't act. That means don't just display faith. Again, I'm just trying to stay true to what I think this te- text is teaching. So we need to balance it. We need to balance it. It's not this extreme. It's not this extreme. I'm trying to bring us back closer to the middle. That God is sovereign over all this, and there's so many people that they lose their faith because they told God he owed them this, and he didn't give it to them. And so I just want to kind of taper that back a little bit. I mean, there's going to be doctor's reports show up, and it's out of your control. There's going to be issues your kids are going to struggle with, and you can't control it. There's things your marriages are going to wrestle with and you can't control it. It's out of our control. So what are we to do? Trust God. He is good. He is sovereign. As we see here and as Jesus says, it is written, we are to trust the Lord. Well, Jesus, as we see, quotes Scripture. And one other thing I want to say is he doesn't quote Scripture against Scripture in the sense that you might be thinking, okay, the devil quotes this one. So is it... I got scripture. Yes, I do. I got scripture. How about you? I mean, is that the chant that we hear? Devil's going back. I got scripture. Come on. Let's go. And that's just the difference between the different denominations and the different churches. I emphasize these passages. You emphasize these. Let's all sing Kumbaya. I mean, is that kind of what this passage is, t- is, is telling us? I don't think so. Jesus. First, if you go back and look at Psalm 91 that he's quoting, he omits part. He leaves off others. And if you go read, it's actually kind of funny. You'll see why he left off certain parts, kind of bad memories there. Um, but he uh, he quotes Scripture, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're taking it out of context and there's a wider principle and wider context in which to interpret this. So he's not just quoting Scripture against, uh, scripture, against scripture. He's rejecting the devil's interpretation of that Scripture. He's rejecting the devil's use of that Scripture. And again, uh, there's a thousand examples to give today, but due to time, we won't give them. The, the whole purpose is when you hear some people quote certain verses... You know that the Lord just desires your vats to be full. No, he doesn't. Go back and, who is that to? What was the context? And start asking questions. There's a difference also here, uh, or a difference for us to ask ourselves, on was Jesus different in private as he is in public? We know that Jesus... The text doesn't say anybody was around. He's not doing this for show. He's not doing this to be popular. He's not doing this because his friend's around. When I was talking about... One temptation of Peter and he falls and we know that he rejected uh, Jesus three times. He denied that he even knew him. I would argue that were the other twelve around or the other eleven around, I can't see Peter doing that. When does the devil get us? When did the devil get Eve when she was alone? When did the devil get David when he was alone? When did David get Peter when he was alone. When did David get Judas, or the devil get Judas? I think I kept saying David. When does the devil get uh, Judas? When he's alone. When does he get Christ? When he's alone. When do you think he's going to get you? Maybe when you're away on a business trip. Maybe when it's late at night and you're on the internet. Maybe it's when you are um, your spouse is out of town or at work all day. When is he going to get you? There's many forms, many ways. I'm not saying this is the only time he'll ever get you is when you're alone, but what principle should we draw from that? To do it alone is to fail. The only one to have ever succeeded in doing it alone, and he wasn't alone, he was what? Full of the Spirit, is Christ. To do it alone is to fail. I mean, thieves, when are they going to get you? (laughs) When you're walking down the late alley, late night at the alley, alone. (laughs) What about animals? They do it. They wait for the guy to peel off and then they're going to go attack him, right? We, we see it everywhere. And so it, it just it, it, I'll go ahead and just say it bothers me to hear certain people, at least especially those in the church, that say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be in a small group. I don't need to be, have accountability. Then you will fail. We have the message here. I'm not trying to taper it back you will fail if you try to do this alone. The Bible never speaks positively of a maverick. There's no mavericks. We saw what happened to the one that tried to do some things off on his own. And what did the devil do? He sifted him. He ambushed him. And that's Judas. So let me end as the text does in verse 13. It says, So when the devil had finished this, all this tempting, he departed until an opportune time. So he leaves. But is he done? He's not. He still lingers until, it says, in opportune time. Uh, Luke doesn't end with with relief. It's actually anticipation. So this isn't, oh, good, Jesus did it, so I don't have to worry about this thing. I don't have to worry about the devil. He's not out there. He is. And I wish I could go through and actually see Jesus speaking to the church in Revelation chapter 2, and he says, the devil's at your door. He's here. Uh, the, The text actually says, he is going. To, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful until death and you will receive the crown of life. But does he stop there? No. I'd encourage you to read the rest of the book. He keeps going and he's still alive and active today. He is the ruler of this world. The, that temptation to give him all the power and all the authority was not a bluff. Can he give it? Did you know that the devil is the ruler of this age? It is not under right now Jesus. He is the ruler of this age. When I say under, I'm saying presently here. One day it will all be given and placed under his feet as a footstool. Second Corinthians four four is a prime text. He is the ruler of this age. And so he is alive, active, and seeks your utter destruction. And so we see here, he's not done. He keeps going. And as Jesus enters his ministry... There's one thing for sure, if that's who he loves. And so my I'm not going to summarize all that we've talked about. I was hoping you'd, you'd see some of the things that are as, as my buddy said, there's so much more going on in this passage that all of our temptations and all of our testings is a matter of love and loyalty. Who do you love and why? Who do you love and why? How do you tell? Your actions will reveal your heart. And so my time is up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much uh, just for revealing uh, how we are to live, Uh, revealing and giving us a model, a mission, a mandate, giving us um, such a great example in which to mimic, in which to to emulate. And so, Father, we are not immune immune to this. Um, We will face these same temptations. Uh, Please help us to not foolishly think, That we can listen to any music we want, watch any movie we want, have any friends we want, flirt with anybody we want, do anything we want with our money, our time, or surfing on websites, whatever it is, Father. Would you allow us to leave here challenged to assess our priorities? And who do we love and why? And I just ask and pray for everyone that is in earshot that you would protect them from the evil one. And I'll pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.